If you're looking in your Bible, it's uh, Mark chapter 1, where we'll be this morning. Mark chapter 1. And Father, we thank you for feeding us with the body and blood of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for giving us your word, which is life for us too. So may your Holy Spirit lead us into truth, showing us the truth, helping us to embrace the truth, and to live in the truth that sets us free, truly free. So come and speak to us, we ask, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 1 and uh, verse 40. Just before the service, John and I were chatting together and John was telling me all sorts of uplifting stories of a lady and one of them was of an occasion where a man with leprosy was healed. So, happened then, happens now. Anyway, Mark 1, verse 40. A man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. I always, when I'm talking to the volunteers at Ashburnham Place, encourage them to ask questions. Whenever you read the word, ask questions, and I encourage you to do the same. And I guess if I did that today and encourage you to ask questions, one of the questions that you'd probably come up is, why... Did Jesus tell a man he had just healed not to tell anyone about it? That's a bit pointless, isn't it? Kind of very difficult, isn't it? You do some miraculous thing, and even if this wasn't actually the leprosy that we know of today, it was still a debilitating skin disease that had the same effect as leprosy. It's an extraordinary healing, equivalent to HIV or AIDS being healed, or cancer being healed, it's a big one. And to say to the guy, but don't tell anyone about it, seems to be ridiculous, doesn't it? We'll get to that in a little while. This is the opening chapter, of course, of Mark's Gospel. The most encouraging sentence in this chapter, I find, is in verse 11, where Jesus is being baptised, and heaven is torn open, and the Holy Spirit comes down upon him, so you have all three members of the Trinity, and the voice from heaven, clearly the Father, because of what he says, says this, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. You all know the Bible isn't written chronologically, but at times it is important the order in which it comes. And here that, that is also important. Jesus, at this point in his life, has not done anything miraculous or dramatic. The only thing he's done so far is at the age of 12, frightened his parents to death by staying in the temple and confounding the teachers. But he's not done any miracles at all. But before he has, the father says, you are my son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. 
I guess there are lots of young people we know who are gearing up to whatever they call them, mock exams, so they still call them that, and then the real thing comes in about May, and gearing them up, because they know that in some senses, as far as their identity is concerned, it's all wrapped up. Do they pass or fail? But Jesus is told by his father here, it's not about what you do, my son. It's about who you are. And the interesting thing is, one of the favorite terms that Paul uses for people like you and me, followers of Jesus, he uses lots of imagery, but one of them is in Christ. So in Romans 8.1 he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Picture a woman pregnant. We were praying for four pregnant ladies last year. They've all been delivered. Now we're praying for another three. It's amazing how many women are getting pregnant these days that we know anyway. Pregnant woman, the child is safe in her, isn't he? Isn't she? So almost everything that's true about the woman is true about the child. It is precisely the biblical picture of the gospel that what's true about Jesus is true about you and me. So here's a thought just to get us going. The father says to you, on the basis that he says to his son, and you are in Christ, you are my child, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And you don't have to do anything to merit that pleasure. Did you get that? You don't have to do anything to make God love you. There's nothing you can make, do to make him love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. Here's the most discouraging sentence in, the, in this particular chapter. It's this one. If you are willing, you can make me clean. This poor man is still uncertain whether Jesus wants to bother with him. Let me consider these verses and then you perhaps can answer this man's question. If you are willing. Don't you find that discouraging? This poor man in great need is not sure that the one who comes to bring the kingdom of God actually cares about him. Jeremiah 31.3 The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. John 3.16, which you'll almost all say with me, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Hebrews 2.14, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. What's the answer to the leper's question? The man with leprosy? If you are willing, if you are willing, People still ask that question today, don't they? If there is a God, he probably doesn't care about me because I haven't cared about him. This poor man asks Jesus this direct question. He thinks there's a strong possibility, even probability, that Jesus said, no, I don't care and I'm not willing, buzz off, or words to that effect. That's how he's been used to it before. The incarnation story from birth to resurrection and beyond Shouts to the world that God does care. Oh, we know the world is broken. Not everything gets fixed straight away. 
We know that. But the life of Jesus shows us categorically that God cares and still cares. And I wonder how many of us and our friends, at least from time to time, wonder whether God is willing to get involved with us. Oh, he does to the person sitting next to us because they're lovely and good and holy and righteous. But me, I guess every time you get a group of Christians together, especially in large groups, people are thinking, well, it's, it's all right for them and it's all right for them, but somehow or other it doesn't count for me. So the story is about a leper, but it's not about a leper, it's about Jesus. The gospel, as Luke encounters it, he says this is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What he's going to tell us is the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And while it's helpful for us to look at the leper, leper the man with leprosy, while it's good for us to help see what he does, actually the story is not about him. It's about Jesus, isn't it? The gospel is about Jesus. It's not the gospel of Mark. It's not the gospel of John the Baptist. It's the gospel of Jesus. And I just want to say three things to you this morning about Jesus from this little passage here. Here's the first one. The one who knows you best loves you most. The one who knows you best loves you the most. I guess most of us, at moments of insight, have things about us in our lives that we hope to goodness no one will ever discover about us. Things that we are so ashamed about or so caught up with that we hope no one will ever discover it. Evangelists and speakers used to frighten people to death, didn't they? Because one of their favourite ploys was, on the day of judgement, God's going to get out his video player and it's going to be your life from beginning to end. And that just terrifies people. Well, I don't think God's going to do that. But he knows it, doesn't he? He knows things about you that you haven't discovered about yourself yet. When I got saved more than 30 or 35 years ago, whenever it was, I can't remember, 38 years I think it is. Yeah, anyway, a long time ago. I had that wonderful feeling of being cleansed and put right and so forth. And I've discovered since then that God did and didn't do that. But in the intervening time, he showed me more about my sinfulness so we could get that bit off as well. Because I think if he'd have dealt with the whole thing at once, as it were, it would have been so overwhelming, I'd have been like a dead person. So God does, in principle, cleanse us from all our sin, but the process of holiness goes on, doesn't it? And every now and again, God shows me another aspect of my sinfulness I was not aware of. He knows more about me than I do. He knows more about you than you do. There are some things about you that you wouldn't tell your closest friend. You hope they never find out. But here I'm telling you this morning that the one who knows you the best loves you the most. There's no one who knows you better than God. And he loves you the most. Nothing about your life surprises him. Consider this guy with leprosy, whether it was or wasn't the actual thing, it certainly brings about physical deformity. Just read the adverts and you find today that human perfection, physical perfection, is a preoccupation with our society, isn't it? And none of us want to look odd. And uh, to encourage our compassion, we get photographs of children on the TV or in adverts showing us disfiguring deformations, don't they? And say, give us five pounds and this can be put right or something. Because we know how limiting, how 
how restricting so th those things are. This man has physical deformity because pain, the pain is gone. So he does things that destroy his skin tissue and fatty tissue. That's what the deformity is. The leprosy doesn't cause that. It's because if you've got no pain, you put your hand up on a hot thing and you don't know it's hot and it burns your fingers and it's destroyed. This man is probably ugly. That brings with it its own isolation. What we look like matters to us. Someone once said, I am not what I think I am. I am not what you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. Shall I run that through again? I am not what I think I am. I'm not what you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. You can let that go around your brain a little while. Whether it's true or not, it matters to us what people think of us, doesn't it? It matters to us what people think. And people would have recoiled from this guy just looking at him. Recoiled. It matters. It brought social implications. Leviticus and the law tells us that such a person has to wear torn clothes, unkempt and loose hair, cover the lower half of his face, and call out unclean when he's near other people. He's basically telling people, keep clear. This is a man who is desperate for physical company. He's not had any human contact since he was diagnosed with this disease. He's had no contact with his family if he had one. None with his friends. He is ostracized and he has to say that. He is completely isolated apart from being with other like people. And there are spiritual effects because being so he can't have anything to do with the normal spiritual life of the people. He's basically, in cultic terms, cut off from God. And I read somewhere that rabbis even used to throw stones at them to frighten them away. Can you believe that? Hard to believe. So it's easy for this man to imagine that Jesus, a rabbi, is going to have nothing to do with him. He's going to recoil in horror... He's going to keep clear because he doesn't want to be defiled. He might even throw stones at him. But Jesus is the one who loves him most because he's the one who knows him best. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, of course I do. Jesus, it says here, filled with compassion. You'll often find the healings of Jesus have those little words associated with them. Filled with compassion, reached at his hand. Now you tell me of another healing that Jesus did, not this one, another healing, anyone you like. Give us one, go on. The one that's bleeding. Okay, how did that one happen? Just briefly, what was the mechanics of it? She touched, she touched his cloak. Okay, another one, please. You don't like preachers doing this, do you? Because it sort of... <laughs> come on, another healing. Hold it. Oh yes, that's okay. A blind man, and he would have to do? <coughs> he spat in his, made mud and slapped it on his face, didn't he? Okay, another one? Jairus' daughter. daughter picked her by the hand and said, get up, it's time for school. No, no, didn't. You get up, use the same words as her mother used to do. Okay, another one? Okay, that's right. And he didn't even touch him, did he? He just said, pick up your bed and walk. That's right. Another one. 
centurion's son. He didn't even go to the centurion's house because the centurion says, I'm not worthy. Just say the word. So even at a distance, not even seeing him, he sees the word. You see the point? Jesus never did the same thing twice. But here's the point here. He didn't have to touch people. And you didn't touch lepers because if you touched a leper, you became ritually unclean, therefore were not able to be part of anything. So rabbis kept really clear. This is the story of the Good Samaritan, remember that? Keep clear. It could be a dead body. I'd be ritually unclean. But what does Jesus do here? He doesn't have to, but he reaches out his hand. He's basically saying, you won't make me unclean. I'll make you clean. It'll work the other way. So he reached out his hand. That's the first time anyone's touched this man since he got the disease. Jesus says, you don't frighten me. You don't scare me. So he doesn't see him as a leper. There was a time when you went to hospital and you were a broken leg or a gallbladder, weren't you? All right? That's how they defined you, by your problem in the horrific old days. They don't do that now. You're a person who has a problem. This isn't a leper. This is a man made in the image of God who has leprosy. There's a big difference in the two. And Jesus treats him as a person. God loves us, not because we're worthy of his love, but because he can't help it. He loves. He loves because he is loved. John, Jesus' best friend, will later write these words. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So while we may never totally understand the ways of God, we should certainly embrace wholeheartedly the love of God. Are we worthy to be loved? Absolutely not. But are we loved? Absolutely yes. The one who knows you best loves you the most. You don't have to worry about keeping anything secret from him. There's nothing about your life where God will say, oh, oh, if I'd have known that, I'd have had nothing to do with you. Nothing at all like that. And Jesus reaches out to this man and touches him. Here's the second thought. The one who might expect the most accepts the least. Who is Jesus? None other than God in the flesh. What can God reasonably expect from his creation? Nothing but perfection. Isn't that right? Be holy, for I am holy, he says to his people. He knows it's a tall order, and in fact this side of glory is impossible, but nonetheless he does it. So the one who could expect the most from us actually accepts the least. Jesus could say to this man, well, go and get your sorted self sorted out and resolve all your problems. Come back together when you're all together and I will accept you because that's the whole point of the gospel, isn't it? We can't do that. It's impossible for us to sort our lives out. So the one who could reasonably be expected to expect the most will actually accept the least. What does this man do? He basically says, please help, doesn't he? He's not even sure that's good enough, so he says, if you were willing, you could. And can't even bring himself to say, please help me. He's kind of leaving it completely open. And that is enough for Jesus, isn't it? We don't have to formulate our prayers in certain structures, beginning and ending, and the middle and nice that impresses everybody, 
before God will do anything about it. We don't have to sort our lives out before God will help us. It is enough for us to say, please help. And in our conversation earlier on, John was telling me stories about children who were praying for other people, adults and children. And, I th- and, and their prayers were being signally and wonderfully answered by God. And perhaps a part of that sort of principle is simply that children aren't fussy. They just say, please God help. Please God do this. They don't use fussy words because they're children. And maybe that's something to do with this whole procedure. Whatever else is happening there. But here, although God might expect the most, can you picture your headmaster or headmistress from your school days? Can you? Big office, big door. Did they have red light? Red, yellow, green lights outside or things like that and you were sent to outside the door and you stood outside the door and you shone your shoes on the back of your trousers and tried to tidy yourself up to look in. People have that view of God. He's like a headmaster, only more so. And therefore, in a sense, I have to buck myself up before ever I'm allowed in his presence. But the writer of Hebrews says, because of the blood of Jesus, we can enter into the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. We have confidence to do that. Not cockily, but confidently because of Jesus. So although you think, well, God surely wants more from me than I can give and therefore I can't give it, therefore I can't come to him, it is enough for us simply to say, please help. Those of you who have children or grandchildren know exactly this. When you are estranged from them because of what they've done, you just long for them to come back, don't you? Not in some wonderfully worded, written statement that they want of apology or whatever. You just want them to come back and say, I'm sorry, or please help me. I can't do it. Isn't that enough? It is for us, isn't it? It is for God. We can't fix ourselves. This man cries out in his anguish and pain. And he gets exactly what he asks for. Doesn't he? It's enough just to say, please But here's the third thought, and it's the one that answers our question about whether you should not say anything about it. The one who does the most good receives the worst opposition. The one who does the most good receives the worst opposition. Have you noticed that bad things happen to good people? I expect you have. Scenarios where we can tell wonderfully uplifting stories about what God has done are also matched by stories where good people find all sorts of problems happening and you think, what's that all about? It's Job's story again is one aspect of it where it's almost like he's the, he's the battlefield on which the battle is being fought. Nothing to do with him, he's just a battlefield. But here Jesus, what's Jesus doing? He's only ever going to do good. He'll never do anything bad throughout his whole ministry and he will be executed for it. Won't he? And even now in chapter 1, There's 15 more chapters to go. Even here in chapter 1, you can hear the echoes of the opposition. You see, what happened in those days was if a a leper, a man with leprosy, was healed, he had to go to the priest, who was kind of like the health official. And the chief priests were in Jerusalem, but the, the priests were all over the place, in Galilee and Nazareth, as well as Judea and all the rest of it. And so he would have to go to the priest and the priest would go through this palaver to work out whether he truly had been healed or not. And if he had been healed, he could have given a certificate of cleanliness. He not only had to be cleansed, he had to be seen to be cleansed because it was a very infectious disease. 
And when he had opportunity, he had to go down to the temple and offer sacrifices to God in thanksgiving. And then he got his bill of certificate, if you like, or of healing. And everything would be okay. Here's Jesus. Now, if this guy goes around saying, I'm healed, I'm cleansed and things, and hasn't gone through that way, the priests are going to think, who is this rabbi who's short-circuiting the law of God? Who does he think he is? Bypassing the very principles God's put in place and the temple that God has given. And Jesus knows that's going to put them in opposition even more quickly than it's going to happen already. So the blind man gets healed. He's not told not to say anything. And other people, because it's obvious. But for the leper, there's this little procedure, do you see? This little procedure has to go through. So Jesus knows the opposition's going to come, but he doesn't want to uh, bring it about more soon than it has to be. He's going to come. But he says, just keep quiet about it. I don't want to provoke opposition here. Of course, the man doesn't. He is thrilled to bits and delighted with what's happened to him. So, in fact, he does tell everyone. And so the opposition does come. And in chapter 3, they're already plotting to kill him. Very early on in his ministry. Of course, that's true for us as well, my friends, as Christians. As we seek to live godly lives, it puts us in opposition to the kingdom of this world. It's bound to, isn't it? A clash of worlds, a clash of kingdoms. It did for Jesus and it will do for us. It won't probably take us to such horrible ends as the crucifixion on a cross, although it does for some people in the world. But for us, living out the kingdom of God means it brings us in conflict with the kingdom of this world. But the more we know the love of God, the more secure we shall be. Because we hold fast to God, knowing the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. So let me remind you, as you travel through this week, the one who knows everything about you, the one who knows you best, of all people, loves you the most. Nothing about your life shocks him, horrifies him, or estranges him from you. You can rest in that love. And resting in that confidence allows us not to be tripped up when sin falls our way. If we believe God is the kind of God who is just waiting to come down on us like a ton of bricks when we get things wrong, then we will fail at the first hurdle because it's almost inevitable. But if we truly believe God knows us and loves us best, then it will give us confidence to come to him. The one who might expect the most from us accepts the least. We will fail this week. You will fail and I will fail. And we'll feel ashamed about that. And we'll feel, oh, golly, I've gone and got it wrong again. And is it worth me trying to get going again? Yes, it is, my friends. Yes, it is. Just come back. The least we can do is to come back to God. In all our dirty knees and scruffed trousers and dirty shoes, having fallen out of the tree again, we can say, Father, please help us. I need your help. And doing the works of the kingdom will bring us into conflict with the kingdom of this world. Of that we can be sure. You will have trouble. But be of good cheer, says Jesus. I've overcome the world. And the confidence of his love secures us. Let me pray.
Lord Jesus Christ, we are glad that you were willing to touch a man with leprosy so long ago and willing to touch people with leprosy today, but more profoundly to touch people whose lives are spoiled and marred by sin. Father, we thank you that you know us through and through and love us nonetheless. You have loved us perfectly and wholeheartedly from the beginning of time and you love us now. And I want to pray for my friends here, Father, as they enter into this coming week that the assurance of your unfailing love will secure them in themselves as they hear your phrase, you are my child whom I love, with you I am well pleased, will enable them to walk with confidence in the power of your spirit into this coming week. And they will be ready, Father, to call out to you at, at any and every moment, in joy or in sorrow, walking in step with your spirit. Father, we trust you, we receive your love, we have eaten and drunk together the symbols that speak so eloquently of this love. Nourish, therefore, Lord, we ask that you will send us out in the power of your spirit to live and work to your praise and glory. Amen.